As many of us are confined all around the world, we wanted to provide you with a daily podcast in partnership with Radio Halara, emitting from Palestine. Our ambition for it is not to add to the saturation of information about the pandemic we are currently experiencing, but rather to propose a 15-minute extension of our political imaginaries every day. The concept is very simple. Every day we ask one person the same question. What is for you a moment of true decolonization? The answer can be a historical moment or something they witnessed, something heroic and grandiose or rather discreet and mundane, a durable blow to the structures of colonialism or a short instant of liberation. While we are recording this podcast in privileged conditions of confinement, we keep in our thoughts the multitude of people around the world who do not share similar conditions or have no choice but to risk being affected by the pandemic because of criminal policies that have to do with neoliberalism, carceralism or colonialism. We thank you for listening and wish you and your loved ones the very best wherever you are. Hello everyone. Today is the 22nd episode of A Moment of True Decolonization, our daily podcast on the Phenobolist. Uh, and I'm very happy to have a returning guest who is uh, Umpo Matsipa, uh, who received her PhD in architecture from UC Berkeley, is an adjunct assistant professor of architecture and urbanism at Columbia uh, Graduate School of Architecture for Planning and Preservation and faculty in the School of Architecture and Planning at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. She's a researcher at Wiser and co-investigator on an Andrew Mellon research grant on urban mobilities. She has written critical essays on art and architecture and created several exhibitions and discursive platforms, including the South Africa Pavilion at the 11th International Architecture Exhibition in Venice Biennale. African Mobilities at the Architecture Museum Pinacotech Modern in Munich, uh, which uh, will and has been traveling uh, on the continent and uh, elsewhere in Europe and the United States. Uh, hi, Mbo. Hi, Leo. Thank you so much for inviting me onto, um, into this conversation. Thank, thank, you for, thank you for coming back after a, a great uh, longer format podcast that I invite everyone to listen. And uh, I know that the question of uh, what is for you a moment of true decolonization was a little bit uh, stressful for you, but I think you did you did find uh, what you wanted to talk uh, about, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, one of the questions that I really had um, in relation to this question was when was the decolonial? And part of that has to do with um, having grown up in apartheid South Africa and going to bed one night in, in one country that was largely shaped by um, white supremacy and capitalism and waking up um, on a different day uh, in 1994 to find that we had um, emerged into a dispensation that was supposedly very new. Um, and, and so this kind of uh, imagined rupture between the past and the present was something that I really struggle with because a lot of the conditions that had produced apartheid landscapes um, persist in the present so that the pastness is still very much part of the present. Um, which kind of brings me to um, what decolonization might mean to me and, and also what 
a project of decolonization might mean in the way that I think about architecture, planning, and spatial practice. Um, so a few weeks ago, um, we had the, the pleasure of hosting an African-American landscape architect at um, the School of Architecture and Planning in um, at Wits University called Walter Hood. And he gave this incredible presentation about um, landscapes of slavery in, in, in North America. And the thing that was really striking for me about this was the way in which he was very actively engaged in landscape design as an act of um, remembering, right? So it was, a, it was an act of um, radical historiography where he was reclaiming landscapes that were largely produced similarly out of a, a, a long history of white settler colonialism, but also dispossession and erasure of the presence of black people within that landscape. Um, and it started making me think in much more explicit ways about my own fraught relationship to architecture, where I hadn't understood until very recently, it might seem strange as somebody who grew up under apartheid, but I hadn't really understood the relationship between um, architecture and property. So there's a, there's a kind of fraught relationship that I bring to it as a black woman in the design profession where my relationship to landscape is one of dispossession. So when I was an architecture student in South Africa in, in my undergrad, we had classmates, white classmates, who had these very sort of grand landscape projects and these grand visions about how they were going to transform landscapes. They had an imaginary of themselves as the custodians of landscape, as the people who were best equipped to preserve and conserve particular sort of natural habitats. And that was a position that I never ever assumed for myself. And I had always assumed that landscape design or grand visions of landscape were a white pursuit. Um, but I hadn't understood the relationship between this kind of custodial relationship to landscape and my own relationship to land, which is a relationship of racialized dispossession. Um, so one of the things that for me has been a very meaningful exercise, um, thought exercise and a practice is really beginning to think historically about the way in which our landscapes are produced and the relationship between landscape and racialized dispossession. And that demands a re-engagement with history um, in order for us to be able to, or for myself, to be able to imagine a radically different spatial future. But in order to do that, I had to sort of go back to the history of racialization and segregation in South Africa that didn't begin with apartheid, which was in 1948, but actually has a much longer history that's rooted in slavery, um, British and Dutch imperialism, and also colonialism. So traditional um, architects of South Africa will argue that the history of white colonial land dispossession didn't begin with the passing of the Native Land Act in 1913, but that it actually stands, uh, spans back to the expansion of Dutch colonial settlement in the Cape Colony. But very often, the Native Land Act of 1923 is a, is a major marker of black dispossession, and it was a major step taken by the white majority government in addressing the issue of what they termed the Native Question. And this was by passing the Native Land Act um, on the 19th of June in uh, 1913. This act basically laid down the foundation for other legislation 
that would further entrench the dispossession of African people and segregation later for colored and Indian people. And the act defined a native as any person, male or female, who is a member of an Aboriginal tribe or race of Africa. And the act's most catastrophic provision for Africans was prohibiting Africans from buying or hiring land in 93% of South Africa. So that in essence, Africans, despite being more in number, were confined to only 7% of South Africa's land. So the 7% was increased to 13.5% by the Native and Land Trust Act that was passed in 1936 that basically stated, and I quote, a native shall not enter into any agreement or transaction for the purchase, hire, or other acquisition from a person other than a native, or any land, or any right thereto, interest therein, or servitude thereof, unquote. But Africans were permitted to buy and sell land in reserves or scheduled areas, while whites were permitted, prohibited from owning land in these places as the state act, as the act stated. Um, the Native Land Act of 1913 also included anti-squatting provisions to stop sharecropping and also define the boundaries of reserves, which were referred to as scheduled areas. The effect of the Land Act was to eliminate black tenants and to replace them in white areas by black servants or laborers who would no longer be allowed to lease land in white areas. So some scholars like Patricia Dixon argue that the Native Land Act was designed to protect whites not only not only the rich white farmers who assured the lion's share of available land, but the landless by owners who thereafter assured, who were thereafter assured of work on farms of others, and the urban poor whites who could no longer be forced to compete with skilled or semi-skilled natives. So, as, so in total, the act went beyond just dispossessing African people of their land. It closed avenues of livelihood for Africans, other than to work for white farmers and industrialists. So there's a fundamental relationship between land dispossession and the production of race in South Africa, and also an imaginary of black people as servants rather than the custodians um, of their own land. And the impact of this land act was probably um, had the most visible impact in that it denied Africans access to land which they owned and had been leasing from white farmers. The Land Act so marked the end of the limited independence which African farmers had on white-owned land. It dispossessed and locked black people in servitude, and African people were forced to move to the reserves, could often not find enough fertile land to use for their crops. African farmers who owned land inside and outside the reserves did not receive any aid from the government in the form of loans. They therefore found it increasingly difficult to compete with white farmers who could use improved methods and expand their farms. So, so this, this very brief history of um, early 20th century um, racialized dispossession is also part of the story of the way in which the discipline of architecture unfolds, because you have the kind of professionalization of architecture happening exactly at this moment of dispossession. And a lot of the tropes of representation, uh, landscape painting, for instance, are all about sort of representing this kind of... Um, privileged individualism of the one-point perspective, of taking in the terrain, and it's always like the position of the settler colonialist that is surveying a territory in which Africans are objects amongst other objects, as opposed to being object, ob, uh, agents within their own landscape. So this becomes a very important um, question for me. What, what, are the, what, are the, what are the regimes of representation that one would have to engage with in order to account for this experience of um, disposition and how do you actually begin to conceptualize modes of thinking about space, territory, landscape in ways that escape 
the logics of, of, of colonialism. So part of the work that I was trying to achieve um, through the exhibition that I curated on African mobilities was, was to invite um, a group of Africans from across the continent to help me think through this question. What are the modes of representations that we can come up with that help us to sort of grapple with our own sort of complicated relationships to space that are so implicated with um, the legacies of colonialism and dispossession um, in different registers because, you know, African um, spatial histories are not homogenous. Um, or uniform. But um, before I get into, or even for the purposes of this conversation, what I, what I, what I want to signal are some of the authors that I've um, been reading increasingly to try and think through these questions. So one of, one of the struggles around grappling with a history of um, colonialism and apartheid is finding ways to imagine a future that is free. Right? So there is a kind of official declaration that we are now free, but what does that actually mean in terms of spatial practice? Um, and what kind of vocabularies do we need to bring to the fore in order to make or to articulate these visions? So um, when people talk about decolonization, it's usually sort of uh, an engagement with Hegel, Hegelian dialectics, or um, citing the great black thinkers um, who have brought us to this point, whether it's Biko or Fanon or César. But um, my go-to people are Toni Morrison, Catherine McKittrick, Saidia Hartman, as a way of really thinking through this relationship between um, not only dispossession and black subjectivity, but also radical imagination. So in her book, Wayward Lies, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Social Upheaval, um, Saidia Hartman argues that historians who write histories of the oppressed and marginalized groups often have to grapple with the power and authority of the archive, and the limits that it sets on what can be known, whose perspective matters, and who is endowed with the gravity and authority of a historical actor. And this is a similar kind of argument that Toni Morrison makes when she, writes, when she wrote her book, um, um, Playing in the Dark. So um, to a degree, both Hartman and Morrison, for me, aim to convey the sensory experience of black life, um, and Hartman in particular aims to convey the sensory experience of the city and to capture the rich landscape of black social life. And she achieves this through a technique of close narration, a style that places the voice of narrator and character in inseparable relation as, and she quotes, so that the vision, language and rhythms of the way would shape and arrange the text. So this idea of like close narration becomes a very interesting technique to think about in relation to black spatial practice? What would be a close narration of black spatial practice be? And what kinds of modes of representation um, um, and forms of spatial practice does that give rise to? Hartman also describes the lives of rebellious poor black women, the wayward, as beautiful experiments. And she argues that black women who were poor um, at the turn of the century had basically transformed living into an art form, and that they had undertaken those described as promiscuous, reckless, wild, and wayward in order to illuminate the radical imagination and everyday anarchy of ordinary colored girls, which has not only been overlooked, but nearly unimaginable. So this idea that black women have the capacity to imagine radical spatial futures or radical futures for themselves is not only unimaginable in the space of like literary criticism or literary history, but also largely unimaginable in the discipline of architecture and planning. Um, and so this is an ongoing question for me around what a decolonizing practice might be. 
what would these close narrations be that don't trap Africans or women or blacks in stories that are dystopian or uh, embedded in narratives of unmitigated despair, but actually begin to identify the space between the notes, the spaces of possibility, the lines of flight, the forms of subversion that one might find that sort of contradict the meta-narrative of colonial dispossession and um, displacement, but also a kind of celebration of upheaval. A second or third author that, I, that I've been engaging with quite closely recently is Catherine McKittrick, um, not only in her book Demonic Grounds, where she begins to map out the spatiality of um, black women in, after the sort of middle passage, but also in her meditation on plantation futures. So Catherine McKittrick defines plantation futures as a conceptualization of space-time that tracks the plantation towards the prison and the imprisoned and the destroyed city sectors, and consequently, according to McKittrick, brings into sharp focus the ways that the plantation is an ongoing locus of anti-black violence and death that can no longer analytically sustain that violence. She also argues that plantation futures demand decolonial thinking that is predicated on human life. So this idea of, of the plantation as something that, that, that has an afterlife in modern-day institutions like the prison or the ghetto, like the, the destroyed, impoverished sectors of the city, finds some resonance inside your Hartman's discussion of the ghetto. Right? So Hartman argues that the ghetto is the plantation extended into the city. But, and importantly, she also argues that the ghetto is a laboratory and a space of encounter, that it has a terrible beauty, that the ghetto is an urban commons where the poor assemble, improvise forms of life, experiment with freedom, and refuse the menial existence scripted for them. She argues that the Negro quarter is a place bereft of beauty and extravagant in its display of it. It is a terrible beauty where black folk create life and make bare need into an arena of elaboration, where intimate life unfolds into the street. So this idea of like the rupture between a kind of overdetermined narrative of blackness as abject as blacks and black spaces fundamentally ungeographic is something that gets subverted through these kind of close narrations of the city that I find incredibly um, fascinating and a site from which to begin to imagine radical spatial futures. Great. Thank you so much, Rumpo, for bringing uh, some more uh, ideas of futurities uh, in this series. We, I think this, this was a uh, uh, semi-recurrent uh, uh, topic, so I'm very, I'm very glad that we get to, to have one more. And then uh, best of luck with uh, everything in Johannesburg. Um, best of luck with, with everything in Paris. And thank you so much for continuing to insist on um, building relationships and networks across uh, multiple geographies. And my conversations with you are always very, very um, uh, inspiring and um, force me to think harder about the kind of work that I want to continue doing. Uh, that's, well, that's really, <laughs> that's really great. I'll continue to be stubbornly insistent <laughs> on having those conversations. And <laughs> thank you so much again. All right, thank you so much, Theo. That's all for today. Find us tomorrow again for a new episode as part of this daily podcast series. And if you're a subscriber to The Finalist, remember that you have access to every single article we published in the past in their online version on our website, 
Thank you very much and take care.